Christian greetings to each and every one of you. It is good to be in the house of the Lord again this morning. And I have been blessed being here um, this morning. Um, I was challenged with Josh's devotional. Um, while it certainly does not uh, just tie in real neatly with what I'm sharing or what the Lord laid on my heart, it certainly uh, complements what it is. And, and I, I'm always so delighted when that, that happens and it feels like confirmation on, on the message. And then also the song selection and uh, especially one of the songs, uh, Would You Be Poured Out Like Wine, just uh, really seemed appropriate this morning. <clears throat> Imagine your friend called you and asked for some advice. This friend is... Uh, is a young couple, the couple of preschool children. They've been offered a part-time job at a local charity. It would require working some evenings and weekends. It would also require keeping another job in order to cover expenses. Would you recommend that they take that job? Let's think about that for a bit. Recently, I finished reading through the book of Isaiah, um, while I'm reading through the Bible in an entire year, uh, I'm doing so uh, in the Jewish Bible, the, at the following the first five books, it goes straight into Isaiah and the prophets, and then the other writings come toward the conclusion of the Old Testament. And so that's the order that I'm reading through the Bible this year. So I finished reading through Isaiah, and as I did, so there were verses that throughout uh, the book that kept catching my attention, but one in particular has kept coming back into my mind. And every time I read it, it catches my attention again. And it's found in Isaiah 54, and you can turn there if you'd like. <clears throat> Isaiah 54 comes between two very, or much more familiar uh, chapters in Isaiah. Isaiah 53 gives one of the most detailed and most frequently referenced prophecies about the suffering Christ, the suffering Messiah. It paints a vivid picture of, of who Jesus is. And then Isaiah 55 is also quite familiar, and it is a, it's like the gospel call in the Old Testament. It uh, is a universal call to faith and God's promise and blessing on those who truly seek God. Isaiah 54, in the most direct way as you read it, is a blessing and a promise of future glory for Israel. And while it's clearly referring to Israel, I believe it is also pointing forward to the future glory of God's church. After the Messiah, that is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, and in, in context with Isaiah 55 as well. It's interesting that Isaiah uses many, or uses multiple different metaphors, word pictures, in this chapter, and he just abruptly switches from one to another. And um, as we read through this, I'd like for you to just keep that in mind. Uh, uh, 
in literature class, you would be taught not to mix metaphors and, and so forth. Uh, and I don't know that he's mixing them, but he certainly is, is using them right af one after another. And each of these is somewhat negative. It's a negative picture, but then it resolves into something positive, in a positive way. So let's read this together. And we're going to read several verses at a time, then I'll make a few comments. <clears throat> Verse 1. Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen, the, lengthen the, your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will, uh, and will people the desolate, will possess the nations and will, pe I must have missed something there. It says the desolate cities. I uh, must have a typo there. But this first metaphor, Isaiah, Isaiah is using the picture of a barren woman. And this being a barren woman in the Old Testament was one of the most disgraceful and humiliating descriptions that a person could have, any Jew could have. And here God promises that in the future, Israel would not be barren. Israel's offspring would be widespread. It says spread far abroad from the uh, right and to the left. And uh, so, so Israel's offspring is promised to be, be wide. And the, the barrenness will be taken away. And there will be, um, so he's saying enlarge the, the tent where you're living and because you're going to fill this up. You're going to need more capacity for all the people. And so that's what's promised in the future for Israel here. And we continue, fear not, for you will not be ashamed and will not, be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood and will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called." So here we see the second picture, and here uh, Israel is compared to a widow. And for the Jewish woman, the only thing worse than being barren was being a widow because she had no one to care for her, to look after her needs, and to provide for her. It was, a, it was shameful, and it was a reproach. And here Israel is being promised... It says, for your maker is your husband. So Israel, uh, God is taking away that widowhood and is saying, I'll be your husband. I'll be your, uh, when, when this relationship is restored, God is claiming Israel as his bride. He is her redeemer. If she, uh, as she turns to him, and so forth. And so the, the shame and the disgrace of widowhood is removed. Then it um, goes on. Uh, let's see. The, For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. 
For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you in overflowing anger. For a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. So here he switches again, and now his wife is compared to, uh, or Israel is, is uh, illustrated or portrayed as a divorcee, a wife that has been rejected by her husband. Uh, for a period of time. And it's interesting how that this is similar picture that Hosea paints in the prophecy in the relationship between Hosea and uh, Gomer, the prophet Hosea and Gomer. So here God forsakes Israel for a brief period of time when she turned away, when they reject him as God, but then when Israel repents, when she repents, God is ready to take her back with an everlasting love. Um, and so, again, a picture of God and his relationship with Israel. And, um, and when, they, when she rejects him or, or is uh, following him. And then the Sunday school lesson was about Noah. And here we have a reference to Noah as well. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. So here, using Noah and the flood as an example, Isaiah is reiterating the mercy and the promises of God. Um, God's uh, steadfast love will not depart from Israel again like it did uh, or like it did during the time of Noah and so forth. Then we have the fifth one, the next several verses. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires, I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and your wall of precious stones. All your children will be, shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, and you shall not fear. And from terror, for it shall not come near you. So here Israel is compared, or Jerusalem probably more specifically, is compared to a storm-tossed city, and then God promises he's going to restore this city with incredible splendor. I mean, using these uh, precious stones and gems and so forth that he's going to use to uh, make that city. And in that city is going to be peace and righteousness. Now, I think we can understand that this clearly is not literally what happened to Israel, at least up to, the, or to Jerusalem up to this point. And then he concludes, If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you, because I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fa fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue or accusation that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me declares the Lord. So here he's using more military and legal type analogies. 
And God proclaims that his people will withstand all the attacks of Satan. No weapon will succeed. No accusation will, be, will bring judgment because God protects and cares for his faithful servants. So that's the, chat, the text of the chapter. But I don't think it's difficult for any of us living in the New Testament era, era to see the parallels and the descriptions of the church um, that we see in here. First of all, the first part you see that the church is global in nature. Uh, the fact that the maker is the husband would point to the church is the bride of Christ. There is a city of splendor, peace, and righteousness that's being prepared uh, for the church. And nothing is ever going to destroy uh, the church of Jesus Christ. And so, to me, it's pretty clear this chapter is also speaking about and to the church, even up to today. But this morning, I want to focus on verse 2 of, of this chapter and think about what message is there for us today. And I will acknowledge right up front that this verse and a statement like this and a call like this is so not me. Um, it is not something that I gravitate toward. It is not my way of thinking. But this is about big possibilities and what God wants to accomplish in and through us if we allow him to. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let your curtains and your habitations be, of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen the cords and strengthen your stakes. I've entitled this morning's message, Don't Hold Back. <clears throat> but I want to look at these four aspects that are these verbs that are specifically mentioned in here and descriptive about what God wants to do and envisions to do with uh, the church. First of all, enlarge the place of your tent. Enlarge the tent. Now, that kind of language doesn't really mean much to us. When we think about tents, we think about camping is about the extent of what our picture of tents is. Whereas in that time, certainly a number of people lived in tents, but, uh, but it was just a much more common thing. And I think we could substitute the word house here to get a fuller picture of what is meant or dwelling. In, middle, in the Middle Eastern culture, when a son was to be married, they would add an addition onto the parent's house for them to live in after their marriage. And so in a lot of ways, I think that kind of gives you a picture of what is meant here in enlarging the place of your tent, enlarging the tent. To enlarge a tent in terms of the church, this is a description of the church being opened up to the entire world. Being one of God's people is no longer limited to being a Jew. It's pointing forward to the time when uh, this is op the church is open to Jews and Gentiles. And I wonder if the reason he uses the word tent 
is tied back to the idea of the tabernacle. Because the tabernacle was a tent structure that the Jewish people worshipped in for many, many years. And that was their primary place of worship. And so in saying this, enlarge the tent. Um, We are to enlarge, we're to broaden, we're to make room to open wide the tent of the gospel, the tent of Christianity, if you will. Now, um, in today's politically charged and postmodern climate, it's almost, I'm almost reluctant to even say this uh, in the way that it's described here in Scripture because this can sound a lot like the rhetoric that is being used by more and more of so-called churches. While this tent is to be enlarged and make room for people of every tribe, nation, it does not mean that there is compromise to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today, well, I would, let's just say that this uh, Christians are not God's tent of salvation is to be inclusive. And when I say that, that probably raises red flags with all of you, and it should. But it's not what we mean today, but it is to be inclusive. It is for everyone. It is available for everyone. We are not, as Christians, are not to be exclusive of others because they are different in some way. But neither are we to be inclusive in the way that is so popular today, and what's def- how it's defined today by simply overlooking sin. I know that, at least at times, political parties in this country have been characterized by terms like the Big Tent Party, and which claims the acceptance of diversity of all kinds of things, but in the end, it's really more of a compromised position and ambiguity of any kinds of principles that they stand for is, is really what it, or an agenda that is being pushed. This is not what is meant by, to be the description of the church. The global church, and by global church, I mean local churches around the globe, is available to everyone. The redeeming and transforming work of the gospel is not restricted to a certain group of people. I don't question whether any of us believes this, but sometimes when I'm truly gut honest with myself, my actions and reactions toward others who are different sometimes reveal wrong attitudes in my own heart, and I'll be the first to admit that. And so I think it's good for us to remind that the gospel is available for everyone. It's not limited to Jews or to any one country or specific nationality or a specific language or people of a certain skin color or a particular social status or education, financial status political persuasions. It's not limited or restricted by criminal history or intellectual ability or religious upbringing. When it comes to the gospel, none of these things matter. 
it's for everyone, regardless of our status, regardless of where we were brought up or how we were brought up. <clears throat> it is in large, the church is to be enlarged, is to encompass, to include repentant sinners and surrendered disciples of Jesus Christ from all walks of life. And so we, here and now, have a role in enlarging the tent of God's kingdoms. We're either helping make it happen or we're hindering it from happening. I don't know that we can really have it any other way. We're either helping or we're in the way. Uh, and so my challenge is, what am I doing, what are we doing to enlarge God's kingdom? In order to effectively enlarge God's kingdom, we need to allow God to enlarge our own hearts. And so going from a church down to us individually, we need to allow God to enlarge the Holy Spirit's impact on and as well as the, what it occupies in our heart, the way that he wants. I believe that, when, that God will enlarge our heart, broaden our perspectives, and see the bigger picture if we invite him to do so. And then we should expect, really, the unexpected. We don't know what God will do with that, but when we invite him to do so, we can expect something. So how comfortable or content are you with your current relationship with God? I would suggest, and I actually I believe, that the more comfortable or content we are with our relationship with God, the, that, the more complacent or stagnant we likely are. It's like salt that has lost its saltiness. We're worthless. We need to retain a hunger and a thirst for God if we're going to be able to be a part of the enlarging of God's kingdom. And let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. A tent needs to be stretched, the fabric needs to be stretched taut in order to repel water when it rains. It also provides shade when the sun is shining brightly or um, and if it's not secure and tight, it's going to be a lot less stable when it's breezy or windy. And in a similar way, I think the church needs to be stretched taut in order to protect those that are inside and, and provide what is uh, designed, we're designed, the church is designed to do. On an individual level, we all know what it's like to be stretched. I would suggest that many times, if given a choice, we may avoid a situation where we know that we will be stretched. Maybe not always, but it's often a bit painful, quite uncomfortable, and unsettling, and introduces a lot of uncertainties, uh, and especially the outcome. And um, an example of this Marcus getting up this morning and sharing his testimony stretched him in big ways. And, uh, but we all have those things that will stretch us. In business and careers, we can often see the benefits of being stretched into a specific situation and being stretched beyond our comfort zone. But when it comes to the spiritual aspects of it, it 
it's maybe not as comfortable or it's not something that we gravitate toward as much. But God wants to stretch us to a point where we can no longer rely on our own strength and ability. And that's pretty sobering. Because as long as we can do it ourselves, we don't need God. And so he wants to put us in situations and stretch us so that we will truly trust God. And God will stretch us if we let him. He's going to stretch us to the point of discomfort and stretch us to the point that's going to require us to make adjustments to our lives and our priorities. But that stretching will also bring with it protection. Um, but it won't, it's, it's not free. It's, it'll cost us something and it's going to require a sacrifice. And I've had to wonder what all is being left undone in the God's kingdom because of disciples, believers, unwillingness to allow God to stretch them the way that he wants. Lengthen the cords. The larger the tent, the longer and stronger the ropes to hold it in place. And uh, there could probably be several applications made for this. And uh, what I've chosen to focus on this morning is that lengthening of the ropes refers to extending grace to those around us and also growing in our spiritual maturity. As we grow, as we develop, as we are enlarged in scope, as there's more people around us and we're stretched the need for grace is also going to increase. First of all, we're going to recognize the need for grace to respond graciously to others, especially when they don't respond or, or perhaps when we're criticized or ridiculed. But then we also need to be willing and able to offer grace to those around us that God is stretching in the process of stretching and is, is working in their lives. We need to be able to extend grace to new believers that are just simply learning what it means to live a Christian life. And we need to be able to extend grace to understand individuals that come from a diversity of backgrounds and religions and cultures that we may not be familiar with. God is incredibly gracious and has extended a lot of grace toward us by just simply offering us the plan of salvation. He didn't have to do that for us, but he did it because he wanted to. It's what he chose to do to show how much he loves us. And then the idea of growing spiritually, regardless of how mature we may think we are, we're still... Imperfectly, we still imperfectly represent Jesus Christ to those around us. Growing spiritually is a lifelong process. Disciples of Jesus will always want to learn and become more like their teacher. And along with that, they will want to show and tell others what they are being taught. You look around at trees, 
When trees quit growing, they start dying. There is no in-between, and I think the same is true for a Christian in the Christian life. If we quit growing, we are actually dying. And so the ongoing nature of, of growth is, uh, needs, should be evident in each one of us. Ivan stopped before he got to verse 18 of 2 Peter 3. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So here he's mentioning both of these characteristics. We are to grow in grace and we're to grow in the knowledge or in our uh, maturity of the Lord, knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is the way we lengthen the cords. Yesterday morning at our men's meeting, someone made the comment that God can't bring to mind, bring something to our minds that we haven't read and studied or learned already. It's like that, that's a good reminder to us. Um, we can't, God can't just put stuff there that we haven't been willing to cultivate and to learn. And that's a lot of motivation, that's motivation to keep learning, to keep studying keep digging into scripture. So let's lengthen the cords of grace and spiritual growth. <clears throat> and then strengthen your stakes. Strengthen the stakes. A little two-person tent, you know, requires a little stake about yay long and, uh, you know, a sixteenth, uh, maybe an eighth of an inch thick. It's not very big and that'll hold it in place just fine. But on the other hand, a big circus tent could not even begin, begin the process of being erected without huge stakes driven into the ground. The larger the tent, the bigger and the longer the stakes to hold it in place. In a similar way, as our tent enlarges and is stretched, we not only need longer cords, but we need bigger stakes. And as the church is enlarged, one commentator pointed out that the possibility of deception and false teaching increases. And so the need to be very deeply grounded in truth also increases. It's absolutely critical for the church to be deeply grounded in truth. And today, in our culture around us, Truth is perceived, and notice the word that I use there, to be little more than my opinion. There is no such thing as absolute truth in the minds of many people in our culture. However, the truth of the gospel, the truth of the kingdom of God, the truth of God's word does remain constant. It is the same now as it was back in the 60s during the, um, if you will, the hippie movement and kind of the modern revolution in a lot of ways, the moral revolution, the beginnings of that. It's the same now as it was God's word in world, during World War I, 100 years ago. Same as during the Civil War. Same as... In, 19, in 1776, when America was established as a country, same as it was at the 1500s during the Reformation, or 
even at the time of the Roman Empire. God's truth is the same today as it was during the early church and the time of the apostles. It has not changed. God's truth remains. Times have changed drastically and are going to continue to change, but the truth of God's word remains constant in all places, at all times, for all people. Being firmly grounded in that truth is the only foundation or basis on which we can reliably build our lives. Regardless what we're told, what culture says is acceptable, the truth of God's word does not change. The fact, well, the willingness, I should say, of mainstream denominations and so-called Christians to twist and distort truth to match what's culturally popular and accepted behavior is just simply wrong. It's sin. Satan is committed to destroy the church in any way that he possibly can, and that's what he's trying to do. And unless we're firmly grounded in truth, we, are, we will be susceptible to those attacks uh, but if, if we are grounded, those attacks are futile, like it mentions at the end of, of this chapter as well. As those stakes are loosened by popular reasoning and logic, we will become far more susceptible uh, to deception. And the same is applied personally as well, that Satan is going to attack us. The larger the tent the fiercer the attack um, and the more important it is to be firmly grounded. While being enlarged and stretched, we also need to be aware that the enemy is constantly trying to figure out how to infiltrate into the church or into our lives to deceive and undermine us with the intent to destroy us. These stakes provide the foundation and the stability so that those efforts can be thwarted. We can strengthen that, the stakes. We can deepen the foundation in our personal relationship with Jesus. I believe spending focused time with God it is an important way to deepen our understanding and adoration of, on who God is. Until we grasp the reality that we are but a microscopic speck in the universe that, create, was, who was create, that was created by God and he cares for each one of us like a father, like Josh pointed out this morning. Until we grasp that reality is why, you know, why would we say no when this almighty God asks us to do something? Why would we say, I don't have time, when he invites us into his very presence? And I, you know, what we believe and base those beliefs on determines how firmly we're grounded, and that has to be the word of God. <clears throat> a 
Earlier I mentioned um, that this verse just really stood out to me, and it has. <clears throat> this verse has made an impact on my life for more than 22 years. Um, at that time, I was 30 years old, been married five years. We had two children. Darren was two in March, and Brandon was born in April. I worked at Inova Fairfax Hospital and had been told in order to keep my position, I needed to be actively pursuing my master's degree. So I had submitted my application for grad school uh, to Regent University. In December of 1996, this congregation had an ordination planned. Chris Diener was involved in the preordination services, and one night he preached on this verse, Isaiah 54, 2. I have never forgotten that particular sermon, and I can't say that there's another sermon that I've ever heard that has affected me in the same way. <clears throat> I don't recall any of the other sermons that were preached that week, and I don't recall the details of that sermon, uh, only the text. But every time I have read through Isaiah since then, this verse always stands out to me. I know that this was preached prior to the ordination, but I don't know what night. But God obviously made a significant impression uh, on my heart before I was actually ordained. At the time that it was preached, I sincerely did not believe that I would be uh, ordained to the ministry. But God had other plans. I was chosen by lot, and my life has been drast had, was drastically altered. And I have to say that since that day... Uh, that I was ordained December 15th of 96, God has been working in my life to enlarge, to stretch, to lengthen, and to strengthen me. I did not respond like Isaiah did when uh, God called him. In Isaiah 6-8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. When I was ordained, I was stretched to a point of incredible uh, discomfort and intense pain. I did not feel or even sense the call of God to the ministry, yet God called. I knew I didn't have what it takes. I knew from the experiences of both my dad and father-in-law, that such a call would be very lonely and vulnerable, uh, and a vulnerable position. I felt totally inadequate, and it felt humanly impossible, and yet God called. So the question is, how should I respond in such a setting, to such a call? <laughs> Prior to the actual ordination, but after being Placed in the lot, I had a call from uh, Ivan Miller in Kansas. Uh, he's my sister's father-in-law and a longtime pastor. I was literally that person 
that I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, that was offered a part-time job at a local charity with no paycheck. It was a job that I wanted. What do I do? Ivan told me that sometimes God calls people ahead of an ordination and sometimes he calls people through the church. He urged me to accept the church's call as God's call on my life. Was it difficult to say yes? Absolutely. Am I grateful that I didn't ignore or deny the call of God? Yes, I am. Working full-time with a 25-mile commute, being a half-time grad student, preaching every other Sunday, along with a young family, required incredible sacrifice, both for me and for my family, especially my wife. More than half of the weekends for the next 14 years were not free time, rather time invested in sermon prep and preaching. Since my ordination, I have invested more than 500, it might be more than 600, I'm not sure, weekends studying and preparing to preach. That's 500 plus weekends not available to spend time on outings with my family to do the things that I really enjoy, recreation and pleasure. In 2010, this congregation placed a very similar call on Ivan and Nicole and Nate and Ann. Young children, full-time jobs, plus plenty of other interests and desires. Gratefully, they too obeyed God's call in their lives, and they have sacrificed much as well. My challenge to each one of you is, what is your response when God calls you? When God calls us, when God asks us to do something, and we refuse that call, aren't we really telling God that we know more about our limitations and our abilities than He does? There is no question it will stretch us, and we are probably, or may think that we're too busy already. But the question I had to ask myself, and I continue to ask myself, if God calls us to something, and we're too busy, what should be adjusted in our lives? In the middle of this verse is the statement, don't hold back. And that statement states very clearly exactly what I wanted to do, what I thought I should do. And it is, you know, a tepid 
or a cautious response to the call to enlarge, to stretch, to lengthen, and to strengthen is simply not acceptable to God. God's expecting a commitment. He has big plans and purposes in mind. Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I wonder what, we, what God would be able to accomplish in this time and age if believers did not hold back. And instead of holding back, asking and thinking and following and doing what God is uh, calling them to, don't hold back. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. God's calling us as disciples to do these five things. To enlarge the tent, to stretch out the curtains, to lengthen the cords, to strengthen the stakes. And last but certainly not least, don't hold back. Don't, don't hold on to things that God is wanting to uh, ask of you and is calling you to. Turn the time over to Ivan to close. He's fit.